0: We're teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So, Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas. And Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders, with the whole church, decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, Corbarabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. And with them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It It is good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food, sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. And after spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with a blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well,
1: thank you very much, Brian, and a very warm welcome to you this morning. Perhaps a little bit too warm a welcome for some of us here today. Um, just to say again, my name is Steve, and I'm uh, new to the church here with Sarah as well, the new uh, planting uh, curate. Um, and just wanted to say a very big thank you again. Um, we've only been here just over two weeks now, and yet we feel that we've had a really warm welcome to the church family. So it's lovely to be able to to, to be preaching to you from God's words this morning, Uh, and to be joining in also with those online as well. Let me pray for us as we start looking together at God's Word. Father God, we thank you that we can be here together in person. We don't want to take that for granted. And we thank you that we can be looking at your Word together. We don't want to take that for granted either. So help us now to listen and to engage with what you have to say to us. And may we leave this building, leave our screens knowing you more, and loving you more, and wanting to serve you better. We ask this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, let me start by asking, what are you passionate about? What are you passionate about? What are you so passionate about that, uh, for you, that thing cannot be tampered with, cannot be changed or altered? It has to be just so. Maybe for you it's something like cream teas, scones, maybe scones rather than scones, and maybe you're cream first rather than jam, or perhaps it's jam and then cream. But how about the accompanying cup of tea? Is it milk first and then just dip the tea bag in and then add two, three sugars? Is that even a cup of tea? Definitely not. Well, maybe you're less fussed by cream teas and more passionate about Leicester City Football Club. I've seen a few shirts in the building already today. Leicester, the mighty foxes. Now, I'm definitely keen now that we've moved to Leicester to watch them play at some point. But if the Leicester City uh, FC board were to sell all the players, sack Brendan Rodgers, change the kit to red, move the King Power Stadium to Nottingham, yes, Nottingham, and change the club's name to Nottingham Forest B Team, well, would it still be the Foxes? Would would you still be supporting Leicester City Football Club? Well, have those things stripped away the very essence of what it is to be a Foxes fan? Well, how about when it comes to the gospel? Are we passionate about that? Are we convinced that if changes are made, things added or taken away, that it is no longer the gospel? That's the question that faced the early church here in Acts 15, the passage that Brian just read out for us. Now, to remind you where we are this morning in Acts, or if you're not a a regular here and you're coming in mid-series at St. Luke's, well, last week we saw the Apostle Paul and Barnabas on tour with the gospel. They'd been sent out from the church in Antioch on this missionary journey. And whilst on the road, they hit up six different cities and on the road with the gospel, and they meet resistance and persecution. But we also saw that time and time again, there were those who heard the message and believed. And notably, it wasn't just those amongst the Jewish people who responded to the gospel. No, we're told that there were Gentiles too, non-Jewish people, those who had been outsiders, now being brought in. When Paul and Barnabas arrived back in Antioch, their sending church, well, they gave a report. And in chapter 14, verse 27, this is what it says. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he'd opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So the context to our passage today is all about this door of faith being opened to the Gentiles. The gospel of Jesus is for anyone, anywhere. And it's with that context in mind that what follows in chapter 15 in our passage this morning is all the more shocking. We're still in Antioch and the church there. And we can picture, can't we, Paul and Barnabas enthusi- enthusiastically sharing all that God is doing amongst the Gentiles. But then in comes this group who have arrived from Jerusalem, and they come to the believers in Antioch with a message. Verse 1, if you're following along, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And we can imagine these celebrations of the believers in Antioch being cut short, the balloon bursting. All those Gentile believers, well, unless they follow the law, they cannot be saved. It's a really serious thing, a really serious statement to make, isn't it? And Paul and Barnabas are having none of it. None of it. We're told that they have a sharp dispute with them over this issue. They're not willing to back down. In fact, so serious is it that Paul and Barnabas are appointed by the church in Antioch to go to Jerusalem to discuss with the apostles there what they should do about this issue. So as Paul and Barnabas, are in, uh, as they arrive in Jerusalem, a church council is convened. And what's on the agenda? Well, as we've already seen, it's the very nature of the gospel itself. The question of what is required for salvation. And the first to speak at this council, the first to stand up, Well, it's believers who have been converted from the party of the Pharisees. Now, you'll probably remember from the Gospels that the Pharisees were those who strongly opposed Jesus and were instrumental in handing him over to be tried and crucified. But wonderfully, some from their number have come to faith. However, we still see that their thinking is shaped by the law rather than grace. The Pharisees would have had deep apprehensions about the inclusion among God's people of Gentiles, viewing them as unclean and needing to be ceremonially cleansed and circumcised to truly belong. For them, there still needed to be obedience to what Moses commanded back in the Old Testament for people to be truly saved, to truly belong. And so we see them speaking up at this council and saying in verse 5, that Gentiles must be circumcised, and required to keep the law of Moses. But what does this really mean? And how does it impact our understanding of the gospel today? Well, it might help to uh, visualize it as a bit of an equation. As I said, we've only moved in two weeks ago, but we've just about managed to unpack most of our boxes now, but the good thing about that is we do have some spare cardboard, which is good for illustrations. Now you see, the message of uh, Paul and Barnabas they had been sharing on their missionary journey was the gospel, was, I'll just peg up oh, Jesus here. Great, hope that will stay there. Their message was Jesus, that trusting in Jesus for forgiveness and life, well, that equaled salvation. Trusting in Jesus equals salvation. But then along come this other group, and their message is the gospel plus. You see, they change the equation, and now it's Jesus plus the works of the law. It's Jesus plus the works of the law that equal salvation, and they've changed the equation. Remember their message? Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And this raises that question that we started with if you change something so radically, is it truly the same thing? We thought about it with cream, cream teas and the foxes, but what about with the gospel? Because here, this group are changing the equation, they are altering the very nature of the gospel. But before we point the finger and judge them too quickly, we need to recognize that we too can so easily slip into doing the exact same thing. We can affirm the message of the gospel, we can agree the good news of Jesus, but we too can change the equation. You see, we can say that to be a true Christian, well you have to trust in Jesus But it's Jesus plus church service. That's what equals salvation. Jesus plus our church service, how we serve in the church. That's what really equals our salvation, really equals our belonging. Or maybe it's the way that we speak or dress. That's what really equals our salvation, along with Jesus. Or maybe even the way that we sing and worship. That's what equals our salvation alongside Jesus. And we too can change the equation. And we might not actually say those things out loud, but actively we communicate them. When we make those things that don't, well, when we say, you know, if people don't dress like us, don't speak like we do, don't act like we do, or worship like we do, when we make those people feel Outside of the church, like they don't belong. We are communicating the gospel plus. And so I think often in our churches, we can be subtly creating a culture of gospel plus, of Jesus plus something else in order to be saved. Well, how do we respond to this in our churches? When we see this in our churches, when we see this in ourselves, Well, let's turn back to our passage to see how the apostles responded to this issue. Well, in response, we then see Peter, disciple of Jesus, the rock upon which Jesus would build his church, standing and refuting, rejecting this gospel tampering. And as Peter addresses the council, we can identify three key truths that we all need to take to heart. And I've got them here. So the first key truth that Peter speaks to the council is the gospel is for everyone, everywhere. The gospel is for everyone, everywhere. Firstly, Peter recalls his own experience of mission amongst the Gentiles. He refers back to the episode in Acts chapter 10 where a Roman centurion, an Italian man by the name of Cornelius, came to faith, he and his whole household. And Peter reminds the council of that event because of what took place there. That when these Gentiles trusted and believed in the name of Jesus, well, they received the Holy Spirit. God came and dwelt with them, just as he had done at Pentecost with the Jewish believers. Peter says in verse 8, God showed that he accepted them, the Gentiles, by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us, the Jewish believers. And the truth that Peter learned from that experience that he now seeks to relay to the council is that the gospel is for everyone everywhere. In verse 9, he states that God did not discriminate between us and them, between Jew and Gentile. And it's because the gospel is for everyone everywhere that we need to ensure that we do not exclude people from it by communicating that it is for some people in some places based on those things that we might add as requirements for salvation, for belonging. There is no social, ethnic, economic discrimination or divide when it comes to the good news about Jesus. The gospel is for everyone everywhere. But then the second thing that we see in Peter's message to the council is this. The gospel is about heart transformation. The gospel is about heart transformation. And we see this in verse eight and nine. Peter makes this really clear in his message. In verse eight, he says, God knows the hearts. And then again in verse nine, it's the God of the gospel who purified their hearts by faith. God is concerned with the hearts. But the group behind the gospel plus salvation, well, they are pushing for external cleansing. But Peter makes clear that God has been and always will be about the cleansing of the heart. Perhaps Peter was recalling the words of Jesus when, back in Matthew 15, Jesus had said that what flows from the heart, that is what reveals a person's true character. Jesus taught to his disciples the necessity of a new heart, a clean heart. And again, this is something that we cannot do by ourselves. It cannot be done by our works, our efforts. We cannot by what we say or sing or, or do in our service. Or we cannot earn that new heart. Only the blood of Christ can wash us clean, can atone for sin, can provide us with that new heart. And this leads to Peter's third and final point, that because the gospel is for everyone everywhere, and because the uh, gospel focuses on heart transformation and not external legalism, we are not to add barriers to the gospel. We are not to add barriers to the gospel. Rather, we are to proclaim grace alone. Don't add barriers to the gospel, proclaim grace alone. Alone, And here, Peter raises the question to this council and to those who had lived by this gospel mentality, saying in verse 10, Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Peter makes it crystal clear Both the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers are saved through grace alone. Grace, God's undeserved gift to us. The means by which we can call God Father. The means by which we are no longer under the death sentence. The means by which we can all have life. That is grace and that is found in Jesus alone. And because grace and salvation are found in Jesus alone, stating that anything else is required merely adds a barrier to those seeking Jesus. Uh, Imagine, if you will, that on your way to church this morning, you were driving up the road, and what is in your way? Well, a great big car park barrier lies across the road, and you have to pay a whopping great big parking ticket to be able to park even remotely close to the church. And then on your way, as you come to the church, you discover a great big obstacle course in front of you where you have to jump hurdles, climb over walls, and crawl under nets just to get to the front door. And when you do get to the door, rather than being warmly welcomed, well, a bouncer is there asking for ID. I think that might put one or two of us off coming to church this morning. Well, in the same way, we can so easily put people off from coming to Jesus when we add barriers to the gospel. So we need to ensure that in our preaching, in our teaching, in our culture and communication, and in our conversations, that we are not adding barriers to the gospel. So we can take these things down. It's not by the works of the law, it's not by our church service or the way that we speak or dress, or even the way that we sing, as good as those things are, and we want to be thinking about how we do those well, we can recognize that Jesus alone equals salvation. Jesus alone equals salvation. That we are saved by grace alone, and not by anything we can do or say. In the book, uh, gentle and lonely by a guy called Dane Altland that I think some of you are are reading in the church at the moment. Uh, Dane Altland says that to help the gospel is to lose the gospel. To help the gospel is to lose the gospel. To try and add anything to earn our acceptance is in fact to lose the good news that we had, the confidence that we had in Jesus' work alone. And And he tells a really helpful story to illustrate this. To us. let me just read it out for us now this is how the story goes picture a 12 year old boy growing up in a healthy loving family as he matures through no fault of his parents he finds himself trying to figure out figure out how to really assure himself of a place in the family one week he tries to create a new birth certificate for himself the next week he determines to spend all his extra time scrubbing the kitchen floor The following week, he determines to do all he can to imitate his dad. One day, his his parents question his strange behavior. I'm just doing all I can to secure my place in the family. How would his father respond? Calm yourself, my dear son. There's nothing you could possibly do to earn your place among us. You are our son, full stop. You didn't do anything at the start to get into our family. And you can't do anything now to get out of our family. Live your life knowing your sonship is settled and irreversible. Our sonship is settled and irreversible in Christ alone. And from that, we can see that to help the gospel, well, it is to lose the gospel. To try and earn our place in the family of God is to undermine the birthright that is ours in Christ. So those are... Peter's three points, that the gospel is for everyone everywhere, that the gospel is all about heart transformation, and that as a result, we are not to add barriers to the gospel, but rather proclaim grace alone. So that was Peter's message to the council. And as we draw to a close this morning, the rest of this chapter, in chapter 15, is given over to the outworking, the practical response to those three key truths. Now, these responses that we see in the he- second half of this chapter can also be our responses to what we've heard from God's word this morning. So, response one, if you like, is to be more like Paul and Barnabas. See how they respond. In verse 12, we see Paul and Barnabas responding by sharing with the whole assembly all that God had been doing amongst the Gentiles already. If there's one way to really believe that salvation is by faith in Jesus alone, by grace alone, and that the gospel is really for all people, well then it is to see it play out in action. Try and think for a moment um, of the least likely people group to respond to the gospel. Maybe you can think of perhaps one person in in particular or, or a people group more generally. Who would you say that would be the least likely to respond to the gospel? Maybe it would be communities living in severe poverty, massively impacted by drugs and gang violence. Well, up in Scotland at the moment, in Glasgow, there's a guy called Mez McConnell who works in the schemes, the estates there, and they're planting churches. And they're seeing loads and loads of people coming from those backgrounds and coming to faith, receiving salvation, and trusting in Jesus alone. And I'm sure there'll be instances like that all over Leicestershire as well. So our first response can be with that of Paul and Barnabas to see that God is already working with those who we might consider as unsavable, and to recognize that he's bringing them in. Well, our second response can be the response of James. And we can be more like James. Now, James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he's at this council, and he was the brother of Christ as well. And he responds by looking back to the Old Testament and recognizing that God has always, always intended to bring the outsiders in. This has always been God's plan to make the Gentiles a part of his people, He quotes from the prophet Amos, who speaks of how God will restore the ruined house of King David so that the Gentiles may come and seek the Lord. And we know that with King Jesus, David's ultimate successor, we have the fulfillment of that prophetic promise. With Jesus, the kingdom is restored, the house rebuilt, and Jews and Gentiles are welcomed in. And so recognizing this, James calls for the council to write a letter to the church in Antioch, where it all began, uh, and to the Gentile believers across the region. And he concludes, in line with Peter's message in verse 19, that we should not make it difficult, he says, for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Rather, he calls them, in this letter, to abstain from four things. From food offered to idols from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Now, we might be thinking, that is a weird list. I would be thinking that too. But here, James is listing things that would have caused particular offense to Jewish believers. In fact, those things closely reflect the commands given in Leviticus, which God's people would have had to, uh, would have, had to have followed carefully for generations. And so in giving these instructions, he's in part calling Gentile Christians to be distinct from idol worshippers, to be different from the world around them, to enjoy God's best plan for sex inside of marriage, and to live out their gospel faith. But he is also encouraging them to make it easier for the Jewish Christians who they will be meeting with, so that they may not stumble or fall away. James is calling for all Christian believers everywhere to stick with the gospel alone. Salvation by grace alone. But where possible, to be considerate towards others. To help them to come to Jesus. And so, if we are living by the gospel, then we will see a new gospel culture created in our communities. Where those in our church will learn to disagree well with one another and as we look at acts 15 and the example and precedent set by the early church and the apostles well, we can learn to prioritize and protect the gospel just as they do which means not being willing to budge when it comes to changing or tampering the gospel equation but instead in love and in care and sensitivity we can look to guide and correct those who have altered that message just as the apostles do here. Now, when we do this, we are enabled to protect and proclaim the wonderful truths of the gospel. And we can be united around that, around Jesus, and equipped to disagree well when we need to. So, two ways to respond to the true nature of the gospel. Respond like Paul and Barnabas, and uh, uh, by seeing and recognizing all the ways that God is already bringing outsiders in. And respond like James, who clings to the gospel, who protects and proclaims salvation in Jesus alone, but who also seeks to help his Christian brothers and sisters by being flexible on secondary things and by disagreeing well. So in conclusion then, Jesus alone equals salvation. I hope you'll have that ringing in your ears as you, as you leave this morning. Any other altered gospel, well, it's no gospel at all. Jesus alone equals salvation. Let's cling to that, proclaim that, find joy in that good news. Let's be united together in that good news and not divided by those things that are second to the gospel. Jesus alone equals salvation. Let me pray as we close. Father God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he has saved us, that his life, his work, his death, and his resurrection means that we can be confident that we belong, that we are part of your family, that we are saved. Father, forgive us when we slip into a mindset that says, by what I do, by what I say, I can earn your love. I can earn a better place in the church. Forgive us from that mentality and help us to not add barriers to those who might be exploring uh, the Christian faith. Rather, help us to welcome them, to love them, as we are still united and clinging to the true, the true gospel equation. Help us to do this by your Spirit, and to be proclaiming grace alone. For your glory, we ask. Amen. Well, thank you very much for listening on this warm uh, Sunday morning. We're going to respond by, uh, by from what we've just heard this morning by... Singing, with well, the group are going to lead us, and we're going to sing in our hearts. And the chorus of this song says, "To this I hold my hope is only Jesus." Let's stand and sing in our hearts.